This podcast is brought to you by flix.com.au, Australia's number one movie and cinema site. Hello and welcome to The Take on flix.com.au, the podcast where we get the sharpest crew of film minds to come along and debate and discuss the best topics and biggest topics on your stream and your screen. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today are two, uh, well, like two of my dearest friends, but two extremely talented and cantankerous film voices. One of them, you know, if you follow flicks.com.au as the editor and one of our key reviewers and writers on the site, Mr. Luke Buckmaster. Lukey Buck, say hello, sir. Hello, Blakey. How are you? I'm so good, and thank you so much for being a part of the show and being such a huge um, a part of its production. He's also a co-producer on the show. And joining us is, uh, you know, today the third leg of our tripod. He's also the third leg of his own tripod on the Cinephiles podcast, but a huge member uh, and uh, and key influencer of the One Heat Minute podcast with Mr. Buckmaster is Mr. Stu Coote. Say hello, Stu. Hello. Good afternoon. Look at this. This is a new space for us to it play is. in. It is. It's very intimate. I like it. <laughs> it so, is. So, yeah. so today, gentlemen, I've got you two along because it is over uh, now uh, with Endgame and, and it's it's a new era of superhero movies. So prompted by that new era with Endgame being released on Home Entertainment and a really great take um, from Mr. Buckmaster here uh, that was on Flix, uh that I thought we should get together and talk about the top five superhero movie moments to date. Because really from now on, in this new Disney-fied world, the superhero paradigm has shifted significantly. DC, there is a new Batman that's going to be coming. There is now not a cast Superman. There is new Harley Quinn movies coming, but have no real connection to their origins in Suicide Squad. So we're kind of on the precipice of a whole new era right now. And uh, so I thought I would get us together and talk about our top five superhero moments from around all of superherodom, um, really going back all the way until the original uh, big uh, bopper superhero movies like Superman by Donner, etc., all the way to Endgame. And uh, and I thought it would be great to get these gentlemen together. So we might kick off our top fives. Uh, just before we get started, though, Stu, you're a fan of superhero movies? Very in general? much so. In, in general? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And well, Luke? I, Luke, I'd know you'd be a pretty big fan of Huge superhero movies. <laughs> I, I feel like asking the question, are you a fan of superhero movies, is sort of like asking the question, do you like colours? Or <laughs> uh, do you appreciate clothes? I feel like, the greatest respect, Blake, I feel the question is is just too, too general to have any real meaning in wow. terms of a discussion. So... I would answer that to say that I like many superhero movies and to bring out my cantankerous side that you mentioned in your introduction, <laughs> uh, I would dislike many of them also and perhaps even uh, hate many of them with the fire of a passion-burning <laughs> sun. Hang on, let me say that again. <laughs> hate some of them with the passion of a fire of the burning sun. Look, it doesn't matter about the suns. Don't, don't worry about the suns. <laughs> the passion and the fire... Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. We feel Blake. the heat on this yeah, side, <laughs> on this side of the it's microphone. It's warming us up on this wintry <laughs> afternoon. It's, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely. So, uh, gentlemen, we might go around the grounds. We might go five to one. And look, it's really hard when you're ranking these. Um, uh, just to say, you sort of uh, exactly which slot they're going to fit in. And I know that we've, uh, you know, we may share some crossover or not. But um, I, I might just ask uh, Mr. Stu Cute, why don't you kick us off with number five on your list? My number five is the opening of Watchmen. Wherever you 
Zack Snyder's Watchmen, uh, the Bob Dylan uh, montage, which is occurring. Um, huge fan, huge fan. I think it's like the strength of sort of Zack Snyder is his visuals. Yes. I think his writing uh, and some other, um, some other things with his storytelling need some work. But I think that opening sequence is phenomenal. Yeah. Bucky, what about yourself? Well, yeah, I absolutely agree. I couldn't agree more. Uh, in fact, that's my that's my number one. Oh, scene. stolen the thunder! Uh, I so feel like we're uh, going to then be at odds as we go <laughs> as I go down my list and you go up yours. It's there's going to be some some tension. Don't know. It's like when you're playing bingo and you you've both had the number called out. Yeah. So uh, I think you could say that there there might be tension, but you could say that we're we're essentially on. The same side, collecting um, towards the, a similar prize. You're my, you're my is... tethered, I think, in this, in this conversation. <laughs> and I'm sure Blake's arranged the prize uh, that we can um, enjoy later on. But no, I, I think it's a, a fantastic scene, and I think it's really, for me, it's the high watermark of um, of the superhero cinema. Uh, I don't know if we call it a movement, um, and it's also a highly unusual scene, really. Um, you're essentially looking at a series of images and vignettes and they're matched to Dylan's anthem, as you said, Stu, uh, Times Are Changing, which is really a song about progress and getting out of the new road if you can't lend a hand, as, as, uh, as the poet himself put it. And then when you match that uh, line or that kind of philosophy and ethos to these images of fallen heroes um, overdosed or um, part of these reinvented historical moments, I think you just you come up with you know this incredibly pressure-packed uh, quasi-historical reinvented narrative, which I just find absolutely thrilling. And it's an exposition dump as well. Right at the beginning of the film, we learn so much about the actual institution of that that is the Watchmen, and sort of all the trials and tribulations, which most people would now take three or four films to tell that as the origin story for each of the Watchmen before they have their meet-up movie of the Watchmen. Yeah, it's, exactly. kind of, it's kind of the ballsiness to tell all of that exposition. And it is like, it's the rise and fall of the Watchmen too, because we begin and they're dismantled. Everything's reflective in that movie. Really agree um, across the board with you gents there. Um, and that's a that's just a rip-snorting scene for me, end-to-end, and... And Snyder, whatever you say about the quality of films, if you take individual snippets from from any of his comic book adaptions, whether you're talking about, I, I, I'm I'm a huge stand for Batman v Superman, um, largely because of the, you know, some of the Batman imagery and iconography and his sort of impression of Batman, even from a purely visual and movement sense, um, and and you know, 300 as it's his own iconic, it's so memeable now. I think it's so iconic, it's memeable, and uh, and Man of Steel is at its best when it's a when it's telling things visually and cutting away from exposition and just being pure you know, joyous Superman flying through the air. But that's a that's a ripping way to start it. We've gone five and one. Mr. Buckmaster, I might ask you, what is your number five? My number five is the fart sympathy symphony scene from Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. released in 2017 and if you haven't seen you do not fail us <laughs> it's a really astonishing uh movie and and we we're talking before about this idea i think of really 
putting pressure-packed visuals and putting interesting visual storytelling right front and centre. The best thing is, if if this was on Family Feud, do you know where Captain Underpants would rank if they asked 100 members of the public what their top response was? Well, I never liked the show Family Feud. (laughs) With good reason. Of course. Because the very idea of it is... Of finding 100 people on the street to ask this question? uh, Well, it's more like you win for saying what any idiot says. It's yeah. like, yeah. I just think that it's all completely anti-intellectual and also anti-fun. Yeah, I mean, sure. it's, it's, it's a sh- burn, burn that show to the ground and yeah. everything that it stands for <laughs> other than, other than the, the host and the humans who can be ferried off. And, put it and to put, work elsewhere. Uh, yeah, put in a more meaningful production like a shampoo commercial, for example. <laughs> uh, but no, this was, a, this was a really special movie and it was released in 2017. I don't know how well it went. I think you're, uh, the, you're the person that watched it. The, the only yeah, person. I actually suspect it probably did really well because this is a big brand, but yeah, it's not... So many, uh, the books are omnipresent. The books are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But it's not the sort of target audience that we would necessarily be part of. But but some of this is quite deceptive because you can look at uh, another great film like Shaun, of, Shaun the Sheep movie. Yes. And and if you look at the key art from it and the poster, there's a sort of like, oh, it's not really, this isn't really for me. That's how a lot of adults will, will think that way. But when you watch it or if you do press play and there's so many different bits of content vying for your time. So to actually get there is, takes a, a few steps. Um, you, you know, you discover the richness of really interesting storytelling. And so this, this film... Um, it's about, or do you want me to start with an overview of the film, Blake, or just the scene in particular? Look, let's, I think you could sort of distill some of that info in, in your explanation of the scene. Yeah, okay. So um, so it's about these, these two primary school kids who have the ability to turn their school principal into this blubbering idiot um, and basically control him like a sort of Frankensteinian creation. But... As he's a blubbering idiot, he also managed to be the manages to be the hero of this world. Um, weirdly enough, which which makes a commentary around heroes as idiots and and subservient people and whatnot. And so this particular scene, it's it's this fart symphony symphony scene where they kind of control him and he's conducting a choir of kids as they sit up and down whoopee, whoopee cushions on various different chairs. And so it's a very, very funny scene. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of farts in there. There's a real jovial tone. Um, but it's it, it's in the middle, I think, or thereabouts of this film, which is just full of visual inventions, breaking the fourth wall. Um, they, they switch and change realities. Uh, it's a really inventive film. And the, the villain, I love the villain uh, because he's a professor called Professor Poopy Pants. <laughs> Who else would be? <laughs> he's a, it's the natural. He's, it's on this mission, right, to eliminate laughter oh, and humour ah. the world. Uh, because as someone who's grown up with the surname Poopy Pants, he's always incurred the wrath of laughter. You know, So for him, laughter is a very mean thing. It comes from a malicious place and he's grown harder because of it. Now, I don't know why... Professor Poopy Pants didn't just change his name. Maybe Easy by to D-pol. go to Depol and change it, Poopy. It's easier to do that than to uh, eliminate laughter from the world. But that's you know that's that's my number five. Wonderful. I, I couldn't have expected any better. Um, and uh, from Captain Poopy Pants to my number five, which on my current list, 
it's so hard to say like where this actually ranks, so I'm just going to say mine are all out of order. This is the fifth one that is on the list, though. It is the entire sequence in The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger's Joker that usually kicks off and is noted with the Why, hello, beautiful. Why, hello, beautiful. And I just think uh, the... I don't know, the energy of that scene, the way that it shot, Ledger bursting into the door, looking for Harvey Dent, demanding where he is, Bruce hiding him, Batman emerging, and then him throwing Maggie Gyllenhaal's Rachel off the building. I just, that entire scene distills all of the beautiful chaotic energy that's in his character and just how much, like, I think something is to be said about how much fun people feel like they're having as actors and performers, even if they're playing menacing characters. And that scene just is pulsating like lightning. You know, when he's in that scene, it's, it's one of those ones that that's a movie that often is on at friends' houses or family's houses. And if you, I find myself, if I stumble through that scene and I see him in that moment, it's just like, there's no, I can't stop watching this movie now. It's over. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm watching the, it from now on. The onslaught of sort of superhero films in the past 10 years has kind of taken us now in a different direction to what Nolan was doing with The Dark Knight yes. or even with that Batman series yes. itself. And I don't know if we can ever recapture where he was going with that kind of ground, almost grounded reality. Yes. Because uh, now we're sort of going more cosmic with everything else. But it was just... What a time and a place when it was. We had someone like Nolan sort of um, bring. Unfortunately, is like created things like the MCU because he made it such a success, the comic book genre. So. Yeah, ironic, yeah, Bucky. It's a, it's a hell of a movie, a hell, hell of a movie, hell of a performance. I remember when they announced Heath Ledger as the Joker, and there was a lot of reactions, some public and some internal. And I remember being part of that as well, more, probably more internal kind thinking, oh, you're crazy, you know, to, to, to think that you're going to beat Jack Nicholson's performance, yes. madness. And then look what he did. He just took this in incredible um, terrorist-like evil clown thing to the role, and, and it was an amazing performance. And it's also like Dark Knight Rises uh, in terms of its atmosphere. He kind of created this really uneasy feeling. It's like Stu was saying, it's kind of this quasi-realism, or it's kind of grounded in a sort of realism um, that it's actually quite a spooky um, yes. place to be because you meet this guy who's slashed open his face um, in this parody of a smile who really would prefer to watch the world burn to the ground <laughs> yes. uh, than anything else. Well, look, uh, I think we've had... Uh, what This is the kind of the exact kind of eclectic conversation we would have for number five. This is exactly mm. what I'm hoping for. Stu, what is your number four? What's number four on your list? Number four, uh, Wonder Woman no. crossing... No, that's what I'm going to do. was was great i just think i i got stung by that final act yes where it was just god on god till one god won but that middle portion where we do have um wonder woman like do dropping the um like she's got the fur coat on and then walking across i think it's it is one of the iconic things of the sort of the dcu yes. not that not that there's much to go by <laughs> but i think it's actually a really important message and I think the Wonder Woman, like them being sort of first to have the big female-led uh, movie, is it's still important. 
and I think it's an important scene. Yeah, really love that scene myself, I, and I and I totally agree with you. I think it's what the how good that scene is distracts from how poor the third act of that movie yeah. is, and, yeah. and and all the lead up. Bucky, what are your thoughts on that one? Uh, well, in terms of being a female-led movie, you'd have to put a few caveats on that. There was the director was was female and star, but uh, the casting crew. If you go down, you look at the cinematographers, editors, writers, and so forth. You, I'm not sure you necessarily call it a superhero, a, a, a female-led superhero movie, but certainly it is a, a watershed moment in in some small part of the cinematic universe, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so and so that that has value in and of itself. But yeah, like Stu was sort of alluding to, these are stories about gods and monsters uh, stomping across the horizon. And Wonder Woman for me is more part of that kind of Captain Marvel, Superman st- type uh, role where it's. They're not the most interesting for me heroes because they are just these um, indefeatable um, gods who are stomping across the landscape, uh, reiterating the point that humanity doesn't really have to do anything here. These guys will always save you, um, <laughs> which is which is which is perhaps a, a political reading of the film. But these 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 stories do mean something, and we're talking about a genre. Uh, which is really more than just uh, a popular genre. It's almost like the defining monolithic narratives of our time. Absolutely. From one monolith to another, to your monolist, can I have number four on your monolist, Mr. Buckmaster? Yeah, so my number four, it's a slightly obscure film. No. Uh, no. What? It's called, it's called uh, Metropolis. Of, it, no, it's called a Return of Captain Invincible from 1983. Good guys and the bad guys It's amazing how much they're alive They both act sincere But they're so filled with fear They switch sides in the wake of an eye And this is a really (laughs) interesting Starring? (laughs) Uh, Hey? Who's it starring? Oh, Alan Arkin. Oh, Uh, really? Yeah, it's an Australian film starring Alan Arkin. Uh, and Christopher Lee plays the villain. So <laughs> wow. it's got some pedigree. It's got some serious chops to it. And it's directed by Philippe Mora, who made uh, Mad Dog yes. Morgan. Yes. Um, and so we're talking Insert about... a cue of Don't Forget the Scrotum from uh, from Mad Dog Mora. That's me. From uh, Mad Dog Morgan, rather. That's me. Uh, I like it how that's the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about <laughs> this classic seminal Australian <laughs> film, the Scrotum. Um, and this is, yeah, this is a film that belongs to the genre of uh, these kind of dark, self-referential, self-conscious superhero movies like the Hancocks, um, the, the, the uh, Kick-Ass, the Super, um, but way before they were cool yes. and way before they were even a thing. So it's 1983 this film is from. Um, and there's a, there's a scene where Alan Arkin is uh, trying to be uh, recruited by this, this police officer, Australian police officer, because uh, basically he's disgraced. Um, he, you know, he, he's accused of working for um, the Soviets. He's he's this complete alcoholic. He hides in Australia, and this this woman comes along and, and tries to convince him to save the world because the Christopher Lee's villain is you know it's ready to, to sort of take over everything that's good and proper, and so he um, she finds this bedraggled um, alcoholic idiot kind of character who's like 
I'm not a hero anymore. Uh, the world is completely rooted and so on and so forth. And so there's one moment where he breaks into a song about <laughs> his woes. It's a musical <laughs> too, by the way. It's a musical. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had the pleasure of hearing, hearing Alan Arkin sing. Like, yeah. oh my yeah, goodness! It's in there. It's all in there, yeah. Um, it's and all in there. he breaks up into song and says, uh, uh, "The line is so fine between heaven and hell, not even a hero can tell." Oh. And he goes into this big song about how back in the older days you used to know who was evil. They used to wear uniforms. You used to know who was good. They had a different thing going on. Uh, which is a kind of prophetic vision. Um, it's it's. I can't say it is a great movie. Uh, I can't because it's pretty dodgy. But it's actually a really interesting movie, and it's very very cool. Wonderful. Very good. I'm gonna have to track uh, that I'm down. I'm tracking that yeah. down. How how does one track that down, Bucky? Is that on a, a streaming service, or is that is it in your really rich uh, uh, physical media collection? Uh, probably both. But it's trackable. I, I vaguely remember. I might be wrong. I mean, I've got the DVD, but I vaguely remember the whole thing's on YouTube. Right. Um, but obviously, you know, you want to go to the streaming platform to support a good quality version if you can find it there first. But okay. it should be online. It should be online. It's findable. Findable. Well, from a man who I never thought would have a beautiful singing voice to my number four uh, in, in, in my list, uh, the scene where Tom Hardy's wonderful, tortured villain of the dark knight rises says that's a lovely lovely voice (laughs) i just love 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 every single thing about that scene i'm a huge fan of the dark knight rises i think it is a drastically underrated entry in that series because of its political complexity because of the landscape of what heroes mean it does have some sort of dodgy setup with batman himself um which doesn't ring true i think more that you watch it but um i think the the metaphorical significance of the, what uh, Bruce Wayne's character goes through, and then similarly with, you know, just having a really, you know, a strange, tortured, ambivalent villain uh, at the center of it, um, I just really love, and I just love everything about Tom Hardy's Bane. He scares the bejesus out of me as a, as a viewer on, on an ongoing basis, and I just love, uh, you know, same. We talked about that gritty quasi realism, and and there's things that happen in The Dark Knight Rises that are triggered by that sort of signature event in the film, where all the bridges get knocked down around Gotham City, where the stadiums blow up, where things start disappearing into the earth, and they turn it into a a city that is a hostage. But and in the breath, the inhalation before all of the chaos. There's just Bane's observation that there's a beautiful singing mm. voice of the national anthem, this choral national anthem shot. Um, yeah, uh, most of the Pittsburgh Steelers, rather, are in uh, Pittsburgh, sorry, um, are playing the Gotham Rogues. Um, and it just, I, it's just unforgettable, that moment, that scene. It's, uh, it's, it's one of my faves. Yeah, it's one of the iconic um, shots we got from the first trailer, I think, as well. Yes. Like That was one of the, those sequences. is one of the first. <laughs> Watching things I, start breaking down. And I, I do enjoy the film a lot. The only thing I don't like is the, the sort of writing device of writing when that bomb was going to go off. Yeah. When we got it down to three months, two days and change, you're like, what? what? <laughs> Since when? <laughs> what, what are you? So apart from that, I just thought that was the only thing. If we if there was a better way to do that, I think it would have helped the film overall. But no, that is a, that's a cracking scene. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To, to write in the timer scene in the bomb without looking a little goofy. Yeah. yeah. Like there's literally no way to do it unless they, it was sort of right that he, 
they were going to have to meet his demands by a certain date or something. But it it just got a bit. And they, and the fact that feel, they I knew feel, where all three trucks were at all three like took the tension out yeah. somewhat. I think we're talking like if you know if you had the uh, if you had the wayback machine you could go back. You're like just give it a date. A date is a date is strong. It just requires a little bit of like reminding the audience of the dates going past. You know, a little bit of twenty four. Yeah, know? I think <laughs> like that, of yeah. things happening. Maybe that helps. But also the the Bruce Wayne thing of. Uh, and this is the thing that doesn't ring true to me, even more than the goofiness of that. I like it. It's so obvious and goofy that it's almost like Nolan going, hey, these superhero movies are goofy, huh? Now I'm going to have people hanging off a bridge. Like, just just remember they're goofy for a second. Yeah. Now I'm going to have people like in occupied zones in the Middle East hanging off of like bridges and things like that in, in a really tormented way. I'm going to do your back surgery in the middle of a um, <laughs> middle of a, a prison somewhere that we don't know where exactly yeah, we I are. Think it's a mix of goofiness. But yeah, for me, some of the Batman stuff doesn't ring true. But that scene and that performance and him and even the sound mixing in that movie you, you crank it right up on a really great sound system and how Bane's voice sort of pierces through all of the other cut uh, anything else it feels like it's speaking directly to you it's and that moment is just special real special. it is yeah and it's an awesome movie but you know I don't know if I'm seeing the goofiness that you are I can see it maybe some of what you're getting out there particularly the timer point but when I think about Dark Knight Rises I I, I feel like the air in the movie it's just got this choking atmosphere it yes. seems to just be full of smoke it's like uh, the oxygen is is poisoning you i think it's got this amazing atmosphere to it which is really really striking it's like my my favorite nolan batman movie used to be the dark knight you know i was pretty much oh that's that's the best one but i shifted to the dark knight rises because mostly for that reason yeah the the tone yeah look i think they're insanely strong they're both of them i think are pretty much wonderful movies and i would always have the argument that if you can churn out the dark knight rises when your overarching plan was to eventually have heath ledger's joker up your sleeve to essentially burn gotham city to the ground in the third one and then you have to pivot to mm. change the story uh significantly i think that that's uh, it's an absolute achievement it's a landmark um in the interest of moving us on we've gone from the third movie in the nolan series to the third movie on each of our lists hopefully Stu coot what's your number three uh, Bucky, you hit the nail on the head when you said uh, superhero films are about not knowing who our enemies are. And uh, that's exactly what happens in my number three. It's the elevator fight from Winter Soldier. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? I think it's peak still from the MCU. I think people still hold the Winter Soldier as the best of the, the yeah, franchise still, I think. Uh, I think it put the Russo brothers, not only just the actual physicality of the, the performances in that lift, but just the way I rewatched it the other day, how they subtly like educate the audience as to where the lift is in terms of the build. Like, cause we show them sort of him and Samuel Jackson going down in the lift and then him leaving on his bike to go home. Then when we return, we've sort of, they've edged, they've smartly educated the audiences to the layout of the building. And the fact when he goes in out the window on the shield, but them in the, them fighting, uh, your man crush, Mr. Grillo. Oh. And I, I just think it's a great, the music kicks in. I think it is one of the iconic moments of the MCU, if not the best. Really good. Really good scene. Bucky, your thoughts? There's something very chilling and realistic, isn't there, about not knowing who the villains are? Yes. Like you go through life and everyone 
it's basically the hero of their own story. We all agree that we're the hero of our own story. And often we're also the victims individually. We're also the victims <laughs> of the world. Yes. Uh, but definitely the hero of our own story. Uh, so to, yeah, to, for when superhero movies present this confusion around these roles, uh, good and bad, uh, I think it gets some really interesting results. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that scene, huge fan of that film. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's such a powerful scene. They even redid it in the end game because it was yeah. so good just to play, to play with it. So it was that good. They needed to go again. Miss Buckmaster from, uh, the second of three Captain Americas to your number three. Number three for me is the, you don't butt in line scene from super. Don't butt. Who do you think you're fooling? I just saw you. Wait. The 2010 James Gunn movie. Absolutely uh, wonderful satire. Wonderful uh, film. Oh, I love that scene. And I love that. It's one of my favourite superhero movies also. Because I just think it's it's absolutely fantastic. And it's this hilarious scene, you know, and he's he's very frustrated. It's like this Seinfeldian moment that the line... <laughs> You know, the line yes. snake around the building and then someone else just comes in and joins. He does the sneaky thing where he just joins someone else in conversation. Look, most of us have done that before. Most yes. of us have done that And most of us overlook it when someone does it. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <Yeah. laughs> and it is hard to say to your friend who's waiting in line, sorry, I can't have this conversation with you right now. I have to go to the end of the line. Like, yeah. That is hard to do. It, is. it takes someone very principled. Um, and in this situation, not, not no one Bolt, on this side no. of the mic is that principal. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. The Crimson Bolt, um, who's uh, Frank Rain Wilson's character, uh, just you know goes goes out to his car, puts on his costume, comes back with a monkey wrench, and just smashes everyone <laughs> who cut in uh, with this moment of brutal violence in this in this film. So it's very very funny. Uh, it's so violent though. The film is really quite violent. Uh, but it makes a point that you don't see articulated a lot in superhero movies, which is about the relationship between vigi- vigilanteism yes. and mental illness. Yes. And, and that, you know, it's a really interesting space. There was an Australian film called Griff the Invisible. Yes. Uh, from about 10, 15 minutes. Is that Ryan uh, Quantum, Bucky? That's hey? Ryan, that's Ryan Quantum's film? Am I, yeah, am yeah, I wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sunk like a stone at the box office. Yes. Uh, it's almost never spoken of again. But <laughs> it does have this one interesting tangent, and that's that, you know, this essentially this guy just thought he was a superhero and turned out to be really, really unwell. But, uh, yeah, I love that scene. And it's a very, very funny movie, Super. Very funny. And for, for James Gunn fans, if you haven't, if you are listening to this podcast, uh, The Take on flicks.com.au, and you haven't seen Super, but you have seen, for example, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, you need to fill that gap in your list because it, it yes. really does inform you of why a guy like James Gunn did get hired because he does have an innate sort of understanding of these hero stories and he is willing to dig layers beneath well, that. And, and especially if you think he pushed any, like if he was pushing any boundaries in Guardians. I mean, yeah. in what is a, effectively a very safe movie, but... He, I think he was at the time was pushing the envelope yes. slightly within what the MCU could do. Yes, I think, and then you go in super when he's unhinged. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I quite liked the the party vibe in Guardians, the first yes. Guardians more than the second. Yes, but you know, they, in that sort of space, they, how many buttons can you push? Uh, they won't let you. Yes, so take something with a little bit more. 
um, alternative spirits and a little bit, little probably a little bit less budget too to allow, to allow you to go fully crazy. And, and they do in some parts. A fun and, movie. And it's why his Suicide Squad could actually be okay if it's going to sort of take the piss out of the sort of the genre a bit, which hopefully it will. We'll have some of his irreverence. Yeah, well, he's got the skills to do it. Um, I guess it depends on how much he's allowed to make his own personal statements and how much the bean counters and the powers that be say, nah. He can. He, he just can't tweet about it. I think that would be the safe bet. <laughs> Put the phone back in the holster. Uh, look. I think he's learned a few lessons about tweeting. He's probably like, oh, you know, has he has he quit Twitter? He probably has. No, he's back. He? He's back he's on back. Twitter. Uh, he's back on Twitter, but it's a much more measured output. He should just write things down, hand them out to his friends, and then collect them at the end of the day, so everyone can laugh about. It. Then <laughs> right. destroy them. Yeah. Write it on a post-it, throw yeah. it into an open fire. Yeah. That's like Twitter. Um, so from things that fly through the internet to my number three um, is. I think the granddaddy and is often left off of in the sort of skewing uh, modern bias lists that we see of great superhero movies, Richard Donner's original Superman starring the beautiful Christopher Reeves and the unbelievable and undeniable Margot Kidder. Um, the scene where Superman flies to Lois's apartment. Good evening, Miss Lane. Uh, hi. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you have plans this evening? Oh. Oh, this whole thing, no. Well, listen, it's no trouble at all for no. you to come back later. Don't move! Um, or... <laughs> Maybe one of the greatest scenes that I think's ever been committed to superhero movies for the fun, for just the the earnestness and also the sort of tongue-in-cheek. It's like both beautifully earnest and tongue-in-cheek and there's something throwback and classic about it. And I just love every single thing about their interaction, including, you know, uh, where, where she's like, could you tell me what color underwear I'm wearing? And she's standing behind a lead... Uh, she's standing behind a lead planter box and she walks behind it and he says, pink. Um, she says, do I have cancer? And, you know, he says, not yet. yet. Um, and it's just this, it, the, that whole interplay, again, it's it's a massive exposition scene, but the, 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 the chemistry that is just firing between those two people really actually was one of the first scenes that got them both the gig. I think it was their screen test as well. It's just, it's just, it's just completely... Uh, uh, just so spot on. And I think Christopher Reeves has gotten something that no other of the Supermans that I've ever seen has gotten, which is that it is as critically important to play Clark Kent as a bumbling uh, country boy as it is to play the hero. And he's a guy who could literally, with a snap of his fingers, do both instantaneously. It's a beautiful scene. The constant pushing up of the glasses, like the bumbling, yeah, the bumbling sort of country boy. And, of course, it leads to the beautiful, her poem, as they're flying in the sky, which is just... (laughs) That's that's some writing. <laughs> no, I love yeah. it. As a, we we kicked off just before, I had a had a had, at the last second had to kick off the um, the helicopter sequence off my list. Um, I I still think that original Superman is is amazing. Uh, it's, yeah. Great. yeah, it's it's full. It's got an earnestness that is very interesting and quite fun without being too stupid or without being you know self conscious. That's yeah. for sure. But can I put it to you? While I really appreciate those scenes. Can I suggest that the ending is one of the worst endings to any superhero movie? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Turning back time. Turning back time. Turning back. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's the one. Me. It's the one super thing that he didn't. 
it's the one power that he never had in the books, and they just sort of stretch the friendship with it. And 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 I, yeah, I agree. I, I, on rewatch, that's the that's the only bit that sucks. If I could fast forward anything, it's that. And it that might feeling. undercut the tension of every movie going forward ever again <laughs> if he can just reverse time. Yes, it didn't oh, even yeah. seem to take a lot out of him. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. And what was he holding on to when he grabbed the earth and spun it backwards? Was it a massive tree? Or was it a handle or something? Like I thought it was to just his own, his own force. Yeah, oh, his own force. So he didn't hold on to anything. He was just he was going he was far. holding on to his love of Lois. That's what uh, he was yes. holding on to. Lois. And he was yeah. holding on to the implausibility of that, uh, that <laughs> script. Um, that's yeah. what he was holding on to. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, the end. The end does stink, but there's too much good Gene Hackman. There's too much good. Chris Reeves, there's too much good Margot Kidder. There's just too much good in that movie for me to, to yeah, not even, unabashedly love. Even it. the guy that plays Jimmy Olsen is good oh, in that. Like everyone's it's, good. Yeah. Oh, yes! So good. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, Stu, from uh, uh, from a movie uh, that turns back time, why don't you turn us back to number two? Mine, as Bucky's was from Super, mine is also from a small independent film uh, called Avengers Endgame, uh, which I think is <laughs> the, current, the current darling at the box office. Seeing it's been re-released and now holds the, the all-important title because money equals quality. Uh, mine from Endgame is actually the portal scene. On your left. about quality overall of the MCU. We all knew that there was absolutely no tension in Infinity War and everyone was coming back and none of it means anything. But the way but they... But there's the a way, underscore on that. The way they put... Presumably there is a but. Yeah, yes. the way they put everyone back on screen in the way they did. Yes, you could say, therefore everything carries no weight and nothing means anything, but... The reaction we had in crowds seeing it, I saw it a couple of times when it first opened, and the cheering in the in the in the audiences and the yelling and like people are into this stuff. Like they would follow a sporting team. And there was one there was one movie I went to see, a couple of the MCU, a couple of um films ago. It might have been Infinity War. I saw it like the we saw it at the press screening, then I went the next morning. I like to see it with just the audience. There were people next to me who were like sixteen. And they've like, we've been, I just overheard their conversation. We've been watching these films since we were six. Yeah. Like they've grown up with this canon of films. Yes. And when everybody came back at the end, I just think it's a moment they nailed. The music's great. Evans is great. Everyone's on form. Whether it means anything moving going forward, probably not. But they nailed it. They nailed something 10 years in the making. Yeah, well, <laughs> I love the pregnant pause where we both stare at Luke and he's like, yeah, well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't know, though, if that's if the clapper meter is the greatest way to judge the quality of our cultural text, though, Stu. It's no, like, no, no, no. I, I, it, it, we, don't, we don't want to judge films by how people have fun with them. That's not, why yeah, we, I mean, that's that's, not what we're here for. That's kind of, well, that's kind of like saying uh, all these people had fun and applauded a Donald Trump rally. Therefore, uh, he, you know, it's a wonderful cultural event and one of the great bits of our time. I, I mean, I, I just don't see that connection as really very very useful but when you said the whooping crowds and everything i did have a flashback to my own 
moment um, in my formative years, uh, which was roughly formative years, which was the the original release of Independence Day. Yes. And, and there was like a huge crowd in the cinema that was starting applause, you know, like periodically throughout the movie. So I, I do appreciate that it is one of those applaud-based uh, moments in, in a film. And to have that energy carry through a room, be it a um, alt-right uh, meetup or be it a uh, Donald Trump rally or whatever you choose, can be a powerful thing. Do you, reckon, do you reckon we could get some... Huh? Do you reckon we could get some Make Avengers Great Again hats <laughs> coming? Or... Good. That's... Yeah, good. I yeah. can feel the money being printed as we speak. Uh, from 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 how much fun people are having in an alt-right rally to Luke's number two. Uh, Mr. Buckmaster, what is the number two on your list? We know what your number one is, so what is the number two on your list? My number two is a scene that I ideally love. Yes. Uh, and it's the ending of Unbreakable. It all makes sense. In a comic, you know how you can tell who the arch-villain's going to be? He's the exact opposite of the hero. And most times, they're friends like you and me. I should have known way back when. You know why, David? Because of the kids. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, they, they call me Mr. Glass. Yes. Uh, and, of course, it's that scene where it's it's revealed that Samuel L. Jackson's character uh, knows he's the villain and went out to this whole effort to uh, try and get Bruce Willis's character to get a sort of kind of perverted yin and, yin and yang sort of thing happening. Like, there's a good, there has to be a bad. If there's a bad thing, there has to be a good thing. And we talked about, you know heroes and villains and it's hard to define the difference but yeah in, in that unbreakable scene it's it's like we all like to think that our lives have a purpose um that we mean something uh to someone or something and uh having that kind of turned on its head it's like it's not this moment where he realizes oh yeah i'm a good guy i can do good things it's this moment where he goes i'm actually in the ecosystem of life and in the philosophies that bind everyone together i'm the bad guy Yes. I mean, that's kind of like, I don't know, it sort of blows my mind a little bit. And and the bad guy is why I'm a good guy. And and the, the biggest bad that I know, this like mass murderer, is the architect of my existence. It's such a powerful scene. Such a powerful scene. And uh, and and has rightly sort of re-emerged as, I think, people's favourite, one of his favourite films, other than probably The Sixth Sense, is one of his favourite and just... Oh, it's most, my, it's, most it's, unbelievably it's, written films. Uh, really, really masterfully orchestrated. It's easily my favourite of his, and it's a great... In, and you're talking the comic book, like with the, the comic book scene reveal, where, particularly, where yeah. it's like we see his lair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's up there with um, Brixton Law in uh, Fast and Furious <laughs> Presents Hobbs and Shaw when he walks yeah. in and says, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> they, I think they're equally like... Aware of who they are, as you say, in the ecosystems of their the films that they exist in. Well, look, um, I mean, yeah. Luke saw Hobbs and Shaw uh, with a, a seat vibrating underneath him, and I don't think even with the vibration in his nether region that Edris Elba saying "I'm the bad guy" uh, would have had nearly the effect no. of uh, uh, Unbreakable. <laughs> no, 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 it didn't have the effect of Unbreakable, but but then few films do in, in this genre for me personally. Yes, uh, it's. And it was like a gut-busting twist 
you know, Shyamalan's delivered a few of them over the years, that's for sure, mm. uh, or tried to. Bucky, where uh, did you come down on, on Glass? I really liked Glass. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. Uh, what about what about you guys? I I was a fan. I, I've only caught it the once. I need to go back, but I I yeah, I, I feel like it didn't it didn't live up to that blueprint that Unbreakable sort of put down. But then maybe you can't step back into those same waters. Some um, fifteen, sixteen years, or however long it was between drinks. What was it? Nearly ten years between. Maybe yeah, longer. What was it about? Yeah, yeah, longer. Yeah, early two thousands yeah. for Unbreakable. Maybe two thousand one. So maybe you can't go back after all that time. No, I haven't seen yeah. Glass yet, guys. I haven't oh. seen it. It's one. It's one I actually missed. So I'm. I'm really keen to see it. It's just now come out on video on demand as you, well. So you saw Split. I saw Split. Yeah, I, I was surprised because I saw Split. Not I saw Split on video on demand as well. Just hadn't hadn't had a chance to catch it when I was on the big screen. And I watched it and I was completely blown away with Split. I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. And then the connection at the end. It didn't have to be there for me, but it was, and so it was exciting. Mm. And and them doing Glass, you know, straight back onto it. And I've read some really incredible pieces about. Uh, about Glass, um, you know Walter Chaw, who's one of my favorite film critics in the world, wrote a real wonderful piece about its commentary on superhero movies. Glass, that is, and 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 that made me really excited and enticed to see it as much as anything else. But really keen to see it, and and sounds wonderful. So from one from 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 uh, from one modestly received superhero movie to the number two movie on my list, uh, a number two moment on my list rather is. Uh, we're going to dive into into the Spider-Verse. Peter, you got to go home. This guy could kill you. I can't let Spider-Man die. Neither can I. It's okay. Yeah, it is okay. <gasps> you got to go home, man. How do I know I'm not going to mess it up again? And you won't. Not bad, kid. Like he's 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 mentored him to take the mantle in his own world, and he and he's guided and 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 is warmed by his ability that he's going to be able to fight. And apart from the entire movie being probably a high watermark in the series of superhero movies that we've seen in this glut that we've had for at least the last decade and now beyond, um, I think Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is just that completely wonderful mix of earnestness, of examination of what superheroes are, of complete cheek, you know, staring, you know, going through the fourth wall and playing with all the tropes and, and those things that we kind of know and, and we love. And I just, that scene to me is just like, it's the best mantle past uh, of any of these movies. And so many of these movies don't have goddamn mantle passes, which is really frustrating. Why, a big reason why I love The Dark Knight Rises is the mantle pass as well of Batman. But I just, I've, I've watched it so many times. I've watched it of my own volition many times because I love it. And now as a dad, uh, my daughter very uh, awesomely is obsessed a little bit with the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So I get to watch it over and over again. And it just has not, even in the slightest way, waned in my conception. It's just grown. I think it's just a, that moment and that movie is just both wonderful. And it's a, I think it's a high watermark for animation. Yeah. I think even that was when sort of didn't get the praise that it deserved. Yeah. The different forms and the fact... The last time I watched it, you can see how it's got the old school, like the little comic circles. Yes. On the like the little like that sort of printed feel across yeah. everything as well. Yes. It just dropped on Amazon streaming, I think, on Prime. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it's remarkable, and it's 
further proof why why he can't do like that climactic scene with Kingpin on the train. We could not get that in a live action film. Yes. Nor should we. No. Because I think once we go once we go into an animated film, our, we drop our defenses a bit, and the rules don't apply, and therefore we're not as skeptical. But if we did that in a you know, like a Tom Holland-based thing, even though there was um, touches of that in the, the in uh, Far From Home, they played with the visuals in a very similar way. Mm. But if we see a big climactic scene like that on a train, we would automatically check out for sort of that uncanny valley at the moment. But in an animated um, prism, it's glorious. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Huge. And to put Miles yeah. Morales yeah. on screen, yeah. I think it's very important. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these movies that we've talked about become classics with time. Yes. You know, it's become clearer to see 10, 20, 30 years later, however many years later. But Into the Spider-Verse, I think it's fairly clear for, for most people almost immediately that it's, it's some sort of classic. Yes. Um, and it's yeah, it's got that. I like the, what Stu was saying, like connecting it to uh, Far From Home um, because it's a, do you mean that scene, Stu? Or there's a few of them actually. The Mysterio with, sequence, uh, mate, yeah, the one in, yeah, the one in Germany. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, which I know, Bucky, you say that like the Disney films don't take too many visual chances. That feels like they were taking some legitimate visual sort of chances in that in that um, sequence. Which in um, in Far From Home, no, oh, far, far From, from home. home, yeah, yeah, no, they were. I agree. I agree that 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 they were. But uh, in Into the Spider Verse, it's almost like the whole thing was that scene in the sense that that yes. the whole thing is pretty bold and and got a lot of bling and it's got a lot of color and energy. And the sound design, like, there's a lot of like, there's a there's a total like great soundtrack, but there's awesome sort of like some real aggression to like he's the sound sound effects around um, like the villain in it as well, yeah. like it's the the one like his uncle. Yeah, yeah, and I love the multiple states of reality in it. You know, it's called Into the Spider-Verse. It's this multiple cylindrical kind of view of time and everything. It's all these wormholes and all these creations within creations happening. It's like the uh, the not-so-good film Pixels had a little bit of that as well, <laughs> uh, where it's like, you know... Um, uh, Adam Sandler and, and whatnot were, were sort of like fighting these video cre- creations that aliens had interpreted to be enemies and stuff like that. And it's and it's just reinventing these little potholes of narratives that curl and, and snake um, amongst each other and, and create this sort of infinite cycle of pop culture, which is really, when it's done well, like Into the Spider-Verse, fun, really yes. fun and a roller coaster ride, but it's also quite trippy and it's quite um you know mind-blowing even well it yeah. had the had the freshness of their first lego movie yes the, yeah, the lego play- and they were playing they were playing again with something that you couldn't expect to work but then they find a new and fresh way to bring sort of a, a look to things yeah and i yeah i love it lego movie is a good example of just switching the state of reality yes and, and it got, got that amazing reveal towards the end of the lego movie uh, when, when they cut to the live action and it's just a kid kind of playing with these toys. Yeah. That's just a, a real massive Twilight Zone moment. Yeah, freaked me people... right out, that movie. Yeah. Freaked me yeah. right out, that Lego movie uh, reveal. Um, all right. From one freak-out reveal to another, Stu, what is the number one on your list? My number one, um, probably from still the best comic book movie, I think, to date, starts with a laugh, and that's uh, the Joker coming into the, um, the group think session of all the bad guys and most importantly when he does the magic trick <laughs> oh, I, 
I thought my jokes were bad. Give me one reason why I shouldn't have my boy here pull your head off. How about a magic trick? I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's... It's gone. And brutal, brutal choice, dude. And when he does that, you just go, oh, you're not in your granddaddy superhero movie anymore. You're in... This is giving us everything we need to know about the Joker. Like, he's dangerous. He's not to be mucked around with. But then to finish it with, like, when he's sort of more or less outnumbered and has no chance, just the, the hand grenades underneath the, the jacket. It just, we get, our, we get our look at his, like, his look for a long time. We get some time spent with him. Because this is only the second. We have him at the it's bank. The, it's the second we have, scene. We, in we have a second at the bank robbery. And he doesn't really do much there. He only puts the, in the heat. Um, homage. He puts the um, the bomb in um, uh, Fickner's face. It's a heat um, homage, the Dark Knight. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I've heard. I've, I just listened to 194 episodes of some podcast. 177 tell, telling me how good it was and how much how much Dark Knight was a remake. Um, but just that that look and the, you know the him in the suit. But just the the aggression of um of Ledger is so good in that sequence. I I still love it. I I think you know you, these top five could be or his five scenes from the from the movie. That for me just shows the full array of his skills. It's a pretty sadistic choice, dude. <laughs> I'm a pretty sadistic kind of guy <laughs> at times. From the simplicity of a pencil used for terrible nefarious purposes yes. to the explosive qualities of grenades, it's. Very literally, for one poor character, at least, very in your face. Well, and, well, that's why they say the pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> Wasn't that a pencil? <laughs> the pencil so if if a pencil case. could do that, what, what could a pen do? Oh, what could a pen do? What could a pen do? And look, yeah. I think the I'm going to have to sidestep this because from one grenade to another, my number one scene, we know that Mr. Buckmasters is that absolutely languid, gorgeous and, and probably one of the most stunning openings of any of the superhero movies from The Watchmen. Number one, the most sadistic magic trick and tinkering with some grenades when you feel like you're outnumbered. Mine also has a grenade. But I think the number one on my list, what really sort of uh, uh, sticks out to me is a moment in Captain America, the first Avenger, with Chris Evans, who is uh, at, at this present moment skinnied, skinnied up uh, to not look like the buff man that he is. And Tommy Lee Jones' general character plucks a, a dummy grenade, which no one knows is a dummy grenade at that time, and he throws it towards this crew of men who he's, uh, you know, going to cherry-pick the next super soldier from to get that super soldier serum. Win wars. Guts. Grenade! Oh, no, no! Get away! Get back! Test. He's still skinny. And I just think in that moment, it's, um, you know, that, that whole Captain America, the first Avenger film, it, for me, it's one that, you know, absolutely with Joe Johnson directing, um, it, it, you know, he directed the Rocketeer. Uh, he's, he was an alumni of the, the George Lucas studios designed the stormtroopers for God's sake. Um, it's, 
it just has it's got a, a wonderful throwback sense it's got an earnestness he's an earnest character but there's just it kind of gets i guess the most idealistic version of what heroism is which is just self-sacrifice and i think that movie in multiple stages and that that you know you know we talk about great analyses and 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 essays of in the series of of, of what we've been talking about of like what is a hero? What is a villain? You know, and, and that being turned on its head. What is a vigilante? Why do people do this? Um, and I think back in the old days when people wore the bad guy suits and then the good guys wore their good guy suits, I think that um, I just really love, I just love that scene for everything that it is and how it echoes to the rest of the series and that character. And I think Evans is a mountainous sort of figure in this whole thing and uh, in the whole last decade of superhero movies and, and that moment for me over and over again when I watch that movie, just it just leaps out. And I think that's why we love Evans because they bring it from that humble beginning. Yes. He sells that so well. Like yes. the, the, even the tech is looking a little patchy now with the sort of the, the way they do it. But you, you couple that scene like where he's being heroic to when he first gets jacked up and he comes running out to chase the the Hydra baddie, and he's still adjusting into the size of his body, and doesn't like, and it's sort of the, this, this goofiness. He's like a you know that he doesn't realize how strong he is. That the physicality of both roles get nailed so well by what he's doing. I think yeah, I think it's very good. Mm. Bucky, do you where do you stand on Joe Johnson, uh, Captain America, the first Avenger? Oh, well, I saw it once quite a while ago and, and most of the film has faded in my memory. And, and that didn't, I mean, I vaguely recall the moment you've talked about. I can't remember it being, you know, a massively triumphant moment for me personally. In fact, it's not at all. But it's interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and when you talk about the self-sacrifice and the old chestnut of throwing yourself on a live grenade, uh, you know, it's a very powerful moment there. I mean, no, it's certainly not in no no way remotely original you know i mean <laughs> self-sacrifice goes all the way back to what the easter story and and the bible and way way past that as well not many so, grenades in the bible not enough <laughs> no, no would have enough. spiced up the old testament if they had had a few more grenades yeah i mean the power of god yeah, a I, would grenade. Have, I would have had john wayne there with his winchester <laughs> the old testament off. does have seven-headed beasts of the apocalypse you know cages built of fire and lakes of sulfur so i'm not sure how much spicing up it could possibly get with a few <laughs> we now, we're going to call that phase seven of the mcu soon that's <laughs> Yeah, but I can't exactly recall the scene. It wasn't an option just to pick the grenade up and, and throw it out the window. He, he didn't realise it was a dummy grenade. He didn't realise it was yeah. a dummy grenade. Oh, that's yeah. right. He didn't realise it was a dummy he, grenade. he's all about sacrifice and he's the one that lays down, literally lays down literally on Literally lays down yeah. on it and says, go away. Yeah, yeah okay. Or, or he did realise quietly, but he went through Oh, the- you're oh. saying, yeah. This yeah. is yeah. a revisionist yeah. view. It's yeah. an and on the take, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest anything else but you to have a take on why Captain America dived on the grenade. He knew they were dummies before. Is that what you're saying, Buck? Well, if you're going to dive on a grenade, it's your responsibility to ensure that that grenade explodes. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, what are Otherwise, you doing? Otherwise, what are we doing what here? Are doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Thank you to Stu Coot. Thank you to Mr. Luke Buckmaster. Guys, if you want to reach out to those two and tag us about what we've missed in this episode, it's at Mr. Luke Buckmaster on Twitter, at Stu underscore watches. And I am, of course, at Blake is Batman. You can find everything else um, you need to find out on flicks.com.au about the take. And also email us at the take at flicks.com.au. But I do have a really special treat. What 
does a film like LA Confidential, like Heat, like The Insider, and like Last of the Mohicans have in common with Ant-Man and the Wasp? Well, it's this legendary cinematographer. I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, everyone. This is Dante Spinotti from Italy, and you're listening to The Take. Great, great, great. That's right, Mr. Dante Spinotti, the legend himself. We're going to have a little bit of a chat around what it's like to be an insanely prolific, creative master and going into the Marvel system because we've been talking superhero moments and Marvel is omnipresent. So let's get to Mr. Dante Spinotti. And one of the last movies you shot was Ant-Man and the Wasp. Can you talk about what it's like going into the the Marvel system, like shooting in when they've got a very specific look for all their movies and you're just going in to sort of, I don't know, recreate that look and what, what freedom you have to work in that little zone that they've got created for themselves? Well, it's, a, it's a, as all your questions, it's a very interesting question because it takes you, it really takes you to the core of what it is like yes. for us uh, to shoot a movie like that. Um, well, first of all, I'm very happy I did that movie. I mean, the director was an extremely cool guy. He knew what he was doing. Um, great director, etc. cetera. Uh, the Marvel movies are, which I was very proud to be a part of, you know, but are uh, movies which are designed exactly the way they will be in pre-production. Yes. So there are a lot of... Uh, well, what they call previous movies, you know, what they are, right? They're tiny little movies which are made with animation mostly. Yes. They represent represent exactly how the scene in the movie will be shot. And the reason why they need to do that is because the costs are extremely high. So you need to coordinate the work of visual effect guys that will do all the, you know, visual effect scenarios, scenic effect guys, uh, stuntmen, production design, all these elements, including cinematography, which is logistically, you know, heavy, yes. difficult, and requires big things. Uh, so so the movies are pre-shot, pre-framed. That is the downside of it, because it's not as much fun. <laughs> yes. When you are in a location and you know that you have to go to shot from here, yeah, maybe we can do it in the morning if we can. Otherwise, we do it when we can. You know, it's all really established, and that's the way it has to be. However, then it comes to the lighting part. And uh, the good side is that I had, first of all, it was an amazing crew. The yes. quality of the crew was stunning. People, most, a lot of people I knew, some people I didn't know, a fantastic group of grips, uh, two or three crew, second unit, third unit, logistically huge. But, uh, so I had all the toys to shoot the movie, <laughs> including any, any, any lighting I wanted at any time, except I had to give them a 24-hour notice. Yes. 24 hours to get any, I needed 18, 12, 18 Ks out of the windows with cranes, and that's it, yeah, you can get it. <laughs> so that, that, that was great, you know, that was really cool. So inside my little garden, I could do whatever I wanted. And that was the fun side. Uh, however, I still think that the most beautiful thing in movie making is combining this, you know, the, the message to the audience, uh, 
with the story you're telling, with how you're framing. Yes. According to what you're seeing in front of the screen. So you have to frame according to what the actors in the scene happens to be in front of you. After you've seen it happen in the rehearsals. Yes. Then you have an idea, but then you decide what to do. And uh, and using freely all the instruments of storytelling with the camera, which is dolly moves, the handheld, the dolly, the zoom, the combination of whatever you want, and all this without being tied with your hands like that yes. to a plan that has already been done. You know, you just however want, you want that moment of that. Um that moment of something that you can, the intuition where you can just say, no, there's something about this that means that I should, we should yeah. try it this different way. Yeah. 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 Where you feel that the creative moment due to the emotions that you receive from the set, yeah. from the rehearsal of the actors makes the difference. You know, this doesn't happen in a movie like that. At least the one I did. Yes. However, it's great to work, you know, at high level with all this. Imagine in one of those sets, which is the set with the lab. Yes. There were something like 8,000 8, dimmer lines. Eight, so in other words, I had 8,000 lights <laughs> that we could change the color of intensity. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, you know, it was great in that sense, no doubt. Thank you to Mr. Dante Spinotti for being on the show, calling me all the way from Italy on his birthday, no less. Thank you, Dante. Thank you again to Mr. Luke Buckmaster, Stu Coot. Thank you guys all for listening. We will catch you next week on The Take. But until then, cut it, print it. This podcast is brought to you by flicks.com.au, Australia's number one movie and cinema site.